For the second part of this review of our 2007 Patterns of Care study of medical oncologists, I visited with Dr. Cliff Huddis to review the findings in adjuvant systemic therapy. Dr. Huddis began our conversation by discussing the background for the focus of the first part of the adjuvant questions on the use of adjuvant endocrine therapy. The very first effective treatment for breast cancer, and in fact, maybe the first effective medical treatment for cancer ever was hormone therapy. And this begins with the ablation or removal of ovaries, first reported by a Scottish surgeon named Beetson in 1896. That's in many ways where medical oncology begins. And what that surgeon was doing was disrupting the signaling of breast cancers based on estrogen. He may not have known much about estrogen receptor or estrogen or any of that yet, but he knew women got breast cancer and men didn't. And I start with that because I think that if you start there, the whole thing starts to make sense. Everything since then has been an attempt to identify better, safer, more active ways of disrupting this critically important growth-stimulating pathway in ER-positive breast cancer. So jumping ahead, tamoxifen, of course, came along. It's a selective estrogen receptor modulator. That name is actually worth emphasizing because it highlights the fact that it's not really a purely anti-estrogenic treatment. It has both estrogen-promoting and estrogen-antagonizing effects. That's why it's good in the bones. That's probably why it causes blood clots, and that's certainly why it causes uterine cancer. Those are all estrogen effects, not anti estrogen effects. In breast cancers, it attaches to the estrogen receptor, and we say it has an anti-estrogen effect, but even there, there's a whole lot of uncertainty. It may be that estrogen would cause breast cancers to shrink. We have evidence of that to this day as well. In an attempt to build on tamoxifen's effect, even more targeted therapies, if you will, have been developed, and the most recent class are the aromatase inhibitors. And what they do is they truly starve the cancer for estrogen because they reduce the body's built-in production of estrogen, and they do it by inhibiting the enzyme called aromatase that converts precursors into functioning estrogens. That's the story. They are more effective than tamoxifen to treat metastatic disease, raising the promise that they would be more effective at treating the microscopic metastatic disease that exists in some patients undetected after surgery. That's the adjuvant setting. And now we've had basically three kinds of clinical trials reported testing them. We've had trials where the aromatase inhibitors have been compared directly to tamoxifen. That is, given instead of five years of tamoxifen. We've had trials where all patients took tamoxifen for a few years and then switched to the new aromatase inhibitor or remained on tamoxifen still in all only getting five years of treatment. And then we have the so-called extended trial, MA17 from Canada, where patients finished a standard course of tamoxifen and then stopped all therapy, which would be standard, or added a second five years of treatment using letrozole. And I think there's a very consistent message across these trials that A, the drugs are safe, that they have some subjective toxicities in terms of aches and pains, frankly, and a little bit of bone mineral density loss, but somewhat less of that than people have been concerned about, actually. And they don't appear to have some of the significant life-threatening toxicities of tamoxifen, like deep vein thrombosis and uterine cancer. And I think the final thing is that for these trials, the message is very consistent. In every one of these trials, you can basically close your eyes and consistently see that once you use the aromatase inhibitor, patients do a little bit better than without. The important caveat is these trials are really limited to truly menopausal women and only, of course, to ER-positive disease. 
And it's interesting, as we've done these patterns of care studies over the last few years, and as, I guess the first data that came out looking at this question of upfront use of aromatase inhibitors was at the end of 2001 with the ATAC study showing that there were fewer recurrences with anastrozole compared to tamoxifen. And, you know, initially in the first year or two after that, and there was some other data that started to come out, not everybody sort of jumped on board. And I think maybe about a third of oncologists were using aromatase inhibitors initially. And now it looks like certainly for the average patient, it's the vast majority of oncologists in practice are starting an aromatase inhibitor. And also, Almost all of the clinical investigators, although a few will use tamoxifen for a couple of years and node negative patients. Is that kind of your take on where we're at with this? I think so. I mean, there does remain a theoretical potential advantage for tamoxifen in some patients, and people are looking at that and waiting for one of the unreported randomized trials right now. And so I think that there is an argument to be made for starting tamoxifen. But I actually think personally that there's a stronger current argument for starting with the aromatase inhibitors. You talked about the aches and pains that people get with these aromatase inhibitors. Can you talk a little bit more about the clinical syndrome, how often you see it and what happens and how you manage it? This has been a very vexing issue because there is anywhere from a 30 to 40% reported rate of complaints about aches and pains. Although when you look at the ATAC trial, the rate of that complaint is very little different from the tamoxifen arm. What is different is the severity of it. In other words, the incidence of the complaint is similar, but it seems to be higher grade, if you will, with the aromatase inhibitor. The cause of this complaint is really not clear. And in fact, an interesting observation, I think, from the Women's Health Initiative is that it really may be linked to the profound lowering of estrogen and not linked to anything else. There have been discussions of vitamin D and calcium and so on, and it may just be that those people with the most profound estrogen suppression are the ones that have aches and pains. This is exacerbating actually a fairly frequent menopausal complaint of aches and pains, and it may be that this is physiologic. How do you manage patients who have the problem? Well, the first thing we say is get used to this, see how bad it really is. If it's a mild thing and you can tolerate it, maybe that's all that we need to do. We recommend non-steroidals or COX-2 inhibitors in occasional patients. Exercise, by the way, I think is probably very important. And finally, for those patients who are really intolerant, we sometimes rotate our way through several of the AIs in an attempt to find one that for whatever reason has lesser side effects. And ultimately, for the patient who just can't tolerate any of the three AIs available, we go to tamoxifen and we say, look, this is an effective therapy, and we don't know that we're compromising very much by using tamoxifen, and so at least we'll have that. Do you see tachyphylaxis? In other words, if you keep the patient on the agent, does it tend to get better? I actually haven't seen much of that. I think some people become accepting of it. Interesting. What about this? You mentioned the issue of the possibility of sort of sequencing tamoxifen first and then aromatase inhibitors. There's a clinical trial that's looking at the reverse sequence of the aromatase inhibitor first. We have the whole issue of the long-term treatment. Where are we heading in terms of clinical trials right now? What are some of the questions out there in terms of that that we're looking forward to finding in the next few years? Well, given what we already know, I think there are really two questions and they're opposite extremes of the timeline. The first question, which we keep coming back to, is should you start with the AI or is there an argument to be made for starting with tamoxifen or not? And the big 198 trial, which is a four-arm research study, has two arms not yet reported where patients started with one or the other agent and after two or three years switched to the opposite one. And that's going to be, I think, pretty important to address the upfront versus delayed use. That's one thing. 
On the other end, we know that breast cancer, especially ER-positive breast cancer, has a very long natural history. That is, there can be late recurrences of that disease. And because of that, one of the more exciting studies for us is the re-randomization of patients who have had five years of an aromatase inhibitor to stay on it for a second five years or not. And in the case of the MA17R, which is the name of that trial, many of the patients will actually be testing 15 years of treatment versus 10. And I think that that trial is going to be really important both on the narrow question of whether letrozole is appropriate, but also, again, on this natural history question. If 15 years of therapy is safe and more effective than 10, I think you're going to have a real push to think about extending adjuvant hormone therapy in many, many groups of patients. I guess the other thing in looking at the initial choice of hormone therapy in the postmenopausal women, of course, with AIs, we're talking in postmenopausal women, is if you look at patterns of care, and we always see this, is that there are always a small number of docs who report doing something that may be considered outside the norm. And I'm curious because we found that when we present these typical postmenopausal patients, you'll see 5 or 10% of docs who say, well, I'd use tamoxifen for five years. Maybe they do an AI later, but initially five years. Do you think that that's an acceptable treatment option nowadays? It's not my first choice because compared to tamoxifen, aromatase inhibitors consistently lower risk of recurrence, and I think we're going to see pretty clear evidence from the overview that they improve overall survival. And so for that reason, I am much more in favor of some use of an AI as opposed to just five years of tamoxifen and call it quits. You mentioned also the issue of bone and aromatase inhibitors. Can you summarize where we are with that? I guess the original studies that we're talking about now, like the ATT&CK trial, didn't really incorporate looking at bone or making changes. Nowadays, we do bone density and use bisphosphonates. What do we know right now about when we monitor these patients, what the risk is of having fractures and bone problems? This is a very big issue because there's no doubt that the lower estrogen state that these drugs induce is associated with an increased risk of bone mineral density loss. But we have to admit what we don't know, and there are a couple of interesting points here. The first one is there is no adjuvant AI trial that has stratified patients on the basis of their bone mineral density health for treatment one way or the other. And what that means to me is I don't really have any way of selecting patients for one adjuvant hormone approach versus another that's predicated on their bone health. The second thing is that there's a very small sub-study of the ATAC trial where bone mineral density was followed. And the bottom line is that most of any of the adverse effects were seen in the first couple of years. And the second is that most of the patients really didn't change their bone health category. If they started with osteopenia, meaning diminished bone mineral health, they tended to stay there, and that was that. If they started with normal health, some of them went to osteopenia, but none of them really went to osteoporosis. So what we do as a practical matter is precisely follow the ASCO guidelines. We do regular evaluations of bone mineral density following one or two-year intervals based on the person's initial presentation, and we manage that independent of the AI use. What about the choice of aromatase inhibitor? As you mentioned, there are three available. We have two, anastrozole and letrozole, that have been studied in trials you know, up front as initial therapy. How do you differentiate or choose which one to use in different situations? Well... For convenience, we typically use all three of the AIs, and we use them based on the available evidence, that is to say, the way in which they were studied. I have to add at the outset, I don't really believe in my heart of hearts that it matters. But out back, we typically use letrozole, although occasionally we use exemestane now, 
with the B33 trial reported. In the switching setting, we typically use anastrozole or exemestane, the latter based on the IES trial. And up front, we typically use anastrozole or we use letrozole, again, based on the ATAC and BIG-198 data available. But I have to end with what I began with, and I don't really believe that the selection of these three drugs makes a difference right now. Let's talk a little bit about hormone therapy in premenopausal women where, of course, using an AI or at least an AI alone is not something that can be done. And when we looked at this patterns of care study and presented a 35-year-old premenopausal woman with three positive nodes, we saw a lot of variation in how people approach endocrine therapy, everything from tamoxifen to ovarian suppression plus tamoxifen to ovarian suppression plus an aromatase inhibitor. It's just all over the chart. You can imagine this woman going to five different oncologists and getting five different recommendations for hormone therapy. Can you talk about these different strategies and how you approach patients like this? Well, for premenopausal patients with ER-positive breast cancer, again, the story really begins in 1896. If you ablate their ovaries, they do better than if you don't. But in the era of chemotherapy use, we currently don't have clear evidence that says that anything more than five years of tamoxifen is necessarily better. We have hints, some of them tantalizing, but we don't have clear prospective evidence. And so we currently randomize patients to ask the question of the treatment strategies that you've outlined. And outside of a clinical trial, we typically recommend tamoxifen. Can you explain what the rationale would be of using ovarian suppression plus an aromatase inhibitor? Yeah, well, actually, it's not so much the cancer rationale, but in fact, it's a fact that aromatase inhibitors appear to be ineffective at overcoming all of the aromatase activity in functioning healthy young ovaries. So the problem with the aromatase inhibitor is in the setting of a premenopausal patient, it may be like giving no treatment at all. So the ovarian suppression is required to facilitate activity on the part of the AI. You talked before about the question of what's the optimal duration of the aromatase inhibitors and the question of whether we might need more than five years. And actually in clinical practice right now, we find that we present a patient, for example, who's had a node-positive tumor originally, has been on five years of anastrozole, a postmenopausal patient doing well in the anastrozole, that about a quarter of the docs will keep the anastrozole going, another quarter will discuss whether or not, you know, the option one way or the other and leave it up to the patient and the rest just stop the therapy. What are your thoughts about this, again, sort of disparity in how people are approaching the question? Yeah, there are really good reasons for all three of these approaches right now. And what we lack is any actual data. And I think that's important to highlight to folks. The five years of therapy is not magic. It's linked to the old conclusions about tamoxifen. There's no reason a priori to assume that five years of an aromatase inhibitor is the right length. Two, the natural history of ER-positive breast cancer extends over many years, even decades. So there is a motivation to do something about this persistent risk, and that's what would drive people to think about longer therapy. Three, the MA17 trial from Canada, apart from testing letrozole specifically, tests the concept of prolonged versus shorter therapy and says longer is better. So where docs fall out in terms of how far they stretch beyond the data, I think, is what explains these different kinds of answers. If you are strictly evidence-based in your practice and you never do anything that hasn't been directly tested, then you can only recommend five years of therapy and you must recommend stopping. If, on the other hand, you look at principles and you ask, what is likely to be true based on the pieces of the puzzle that I already have, you might come to the conclusion that staying on therapy is worthwhile. 
Another situation is the patient who's been diagnosed in the past but has never received an aromatase inhibitor. For example, maybe they received tamoxifen or maybe they'd had no endocrine therapy. We presented a case like that where a woman had five years of tamoxifen, had a node-positive tumor, has been off tamoxifen for a year or even three years, and you see a substantial number of the docs in practice as well as the investigators will start an aromatase inhibitor at that point. What are your thoughts about this, and how long can it be since they've been diagnosed or treated that you can start an aromatase inhibitor and prevent relapses? Well, of course, again, we don't have data that addresses a break in therapy followed by reinitiation of hormone therapy. So we are in a pure land of extrapolation. But by the same token, especially for high-risk patients, we know that they have substantial risk in later years. A fact that's often not appreciated is that for hormone receptor-positive breast cancer, there are more recurrence events after the fifth year than in the first five years. And so... If you have a safe and effective therapy to apply at some point after five years of tamoxifen, there's every motivation to be looking at that. And we do have some indirect evidence that says that the timing of the initiation of an aromatase inhibitor may be less important than we think. I don't mean that it's not important to use it early. That's not my point. My point is that it may not lose much effectiveness when used later. And the reasons I say that is that we have a pretty consistent impact on recurrence, whether the aromatase inhibitor is used in the first day, the second year, or the fifth year of natural history. And another example of this idea is that when we talk about the prevention setting, in preventing ER-positive breast cancer using hormone therapy, and I mean specifically tamoxifen or more recently raloxifene, we don't know where we are in the natural history of the cancers we're preventing. All we know is one day a woman comes in and gets treated, and in the subsequent years, her risk of developing breast cancer is reduced. And so I think that it is not crazy in a high-risk patient to think about adding on an aromatase inhibitor when a clinician has the sense that an opportunity may have been missed in previous months and years. I want to talk a little bit about the issue of chemotherapy, adjuvant chemotherapy, both in patients with HER2 negative and HER2 positive tumors. The nurses in the infusion room see these patients getting treated, but a lot of times they might not be aware of all the kind of research that leads into the choice and the dilemmas that we face. And, of course, that's particularly heightened in the patient who's at relatively lower risk with a node-negative tumor. Let's talk a little bit about the issue of HER2-negative situation first. And, of course, one of the most common sort of subsets that we deal with is a patient who has a node-negative, ER-positive, and HER2-negative tumor. Can you talk about how those three variables, when they come together like that, sort of affects the way you approach the issue about adjuvant chemotherapy? Well, historically, anatomy was king. And so a patient whose tumors involved lymph nodes gave a clue that that tumor was more likely or more able to spread distantly. And conversely, a node-negative tumor was less likely to spread distantly. The second anatomic concern was tumor size, and it's the same idea. Bigger tumors more likely to spread, and smaller tumors less likely to spread. Biology has become more and more important, and HER2 is now a clear distinguishing feature because not only does it indicate tumors more or less likely to spread, but it also identifies tumors that are likely to respond or not to a targeted therapy, trastuzumab. And similarly, ER status and combined with progesterone receptor status plays the same kind of a role. So the example at hand is a particularly low-risk and difficult situation in terms of thinking 
because the tumor is ostensibly low risk, small and node negative. Therefore, the risk of recurrence is at the outset relatively low. Therefore, the benefits of things like chemotherapy are relatively modest. They can't be large. And the risks of chemotherapy loom relatively larger because they're constant independent of the risk of the cancer. And so the way you approach this is you say, well, firstly, what's the least toxic most effective intervention I have at my disposal? And the answer is an anti-hormone therapy. And then you ask, with what residual risk still is present, what's the marginal benefit of tackling on chemotherapy? And there we get into, you know, really difficult decision-making. Can you talk a little bit about the Oncotype DX assay and how that can be helpful in this situation? The Oncotype DX is in certain ways like a very sophisticated pathology exam. What it looks at is 16 specific genes that were selected because they were likely to predict outcome in early-stage breast cancer. And what we look at is the way those genes have been turned on in comparison to five reference genes, that is, five genes that typically don't vary a whole lot. And in certain profiles, when those genes are turned on a certain way, the risk of the breast cancer coming back appears to be higher And in other situations where those genes are not turned on so much, the risk of the cancer coming back is lower. That alone is only part of the story. The second part of the story is that when those genes are activated and the risk is higher, we have some evidence that those are specifically the cancers that respond to chemotherapy. So ideally, this test could be used to identify in a group of people who look at first blush like they have low-risk breast cancer those who really actually have higher risk and do benefit from chemotherapy potentially, and conversely, those who really do have the low risk you think they have and can avoid chemo. And it looks like this assay really has become a part of practice in a big way. We saw that literally all the investigators have used it, and about three-quarters of the onks in practice are using it. What are the specific kinds of situations that this is most helpful? Well, I think There are a couple of situations where it's most helpful. The first would be the patient who normally might not get chemotherapy in your practice. So in some practices, that would be a sub-centimeter cancer. In others, that would be a sub-two-centimeter cancer. If it's ER positive and HER2 normal especially, and of course, note negative, and hormone therapy is already a consideration for that patient, a high recurrence score can convince an otherwise reluctant doc or patient to go ahead and get treatment. Conversely, I think that there are patients with sort of borderline tumors just over a centimeter where, by historical standards, we would be considering chemotherapy, and a low oncotype score can reassure the patient and the doctor that chemotherapy really may be of limited or no value in such a setting. Let's talk a little bit about the choice of chemotherapy in the patient who has a node-negative or a lower-risk tumor. And in the past, of course, the AC, adriamycin, cyclophosphamide, four-cycle regimen has been by far the most common regimen that we've seen in our patterns of care studies of what people are using in this situation. In the node-positive or higher-risk situation, the taxane gets added in. But we've seen a shift, particularly in the clinical investigators, towards the use of the TC regimen, docetaxel cyclophosphamide, and now about 40% of them say that's the regimen they generally use in these smaller node-negative tumors. Can you talk a little bit about what we know about TC and sort of how it compares with AC and other treatment options in this situation? Well, it's important to point out that the only comparison we have for TC is directly against conventional every third week AC. And in that comparison, it lowered the risk of the cancer returning It did not change survival overall, but there's a favorable trend, I would say, 
and the study is relatively modestly sized, so it might not ever be able to show a survival difference. Finally, the toxicity profile was varied, and there are two specific toxicities seen with anthracyclines that are of concern here. One is cardiac toxicity, which appears to be remarkably diminished with the TC, as you'd expect. And the second is a long-term leukemia and MDS risk that's specific to the anthracycline, and that may be avoided in the long-term with TC, although we need more follow-up to be certain of that. In terms of acute toxicities, the regimens are probably more alike than not, but there's a little more neutropenic fever with the TC as compared to the AC, and that's something that can be managed using the conventional supportive care techniques that we all routinely use. It's really interesting when we do these patterns of care studies sequentially and we see the data come out and then we see people start to react, et cetera. And it looks like people are kind of still thinking about this and that, you know, still a substantial number of people are using AC. But it's interesting when we ask both the investigators and the docs in practice, how would you compare the efficacy of TC versus AC? Most of them think that TC is more efficacious. And how would you compare the tolerability? And more people think that TC is of greater tolerability. How do you assess those two factors? And where do you think this is heading? Do you think that in a few years we may not be using anthracyclines in this situation? Well, I think in particular for the lower risk but chemo-needing HER2-normal subset, I think that avoiding the anthracycline may turn out to be everybody's first choice. And I think that you may continue to see an uptick in TC use. I think that the data is the data, and there are peaks and valleys in terms of toxicities. And to some degree, the choice of regimen on the toxicity side is about which toxicities are more or less concerning to the individual patient and practitioner. You mentioned the issue of neutropenia in TC, although the docetaxel dose there is lower than it's often used by itself at 75 per meter squared. What about the use of prophylactic growth factors in this situation? Well, I think many or most clinicians would elect to do just that, and as they would for almost any docetaxel-containing regimen. So in that case, I guess that sort of should ameliorate that issue in terms of neutropenia. I would expect that. Let's talk a little bit about the use of chemotherapy in patients, adjuvant chemotherapy in patients with HER2-positive tumors. And, of course, the biggest controversy is whether to use it and what to use, again, in the lower-risk, node-negative patients. What we saw in our patterns of care studies seems to be kind of a consensus that if the tumor is 1 to 2 centimeters and node-negative, that most people would use chemotherapy with trastuzumab. But when it gets below 1 centimeter, you start seeing people questioning whether or not you should use both or either. What are your thoughts about these trends? The problem here is, of course, we don't have any direct evidence one way or the other. It's important, I think, to recognize that trastuzumab is an active single agent. It's not used a whole lot that way for a variety of good reasons, but it is an active drug. And so in the very lowest risk cohort, there is a real temptation to think about it as a way of treating breast cancer and avoiding all of the toxicity of chemotherapy. Of course, the dilemma is we have precisely no data that supports that in the adjuvant setting. So I have occasionally seen situations and scenarios where that makes sense. But for me, as a routine matter, I use trastuzumab when the patient has conventional criteria that justify the use of a standard chemo regimen first. And you mentioned the issue of using trastuzumab without chemotherapy. And again, in this survey, we found that about a third of the docs, you know, will consider using that in some situations. But again, a lot of controversy about it. What about whether to use chemotherapy or trastuzumab in the tumors that are under a centimeter, you know, eight or nine millimeters? How do you make that decision? And where does the ER fit in in making the decision? 
Well, I'm glad you asked about ER because in a way that makes it easier. When they're ER negative and nearing a centimeter in size, I don't have that much concern about over-treating if I give a standard regimen and trastuzumab. When they're ER positive, especially strongly ER positive, and they're going to get a pretty big bang for their buck, if you will, from adjuvant hormone therapy, the marginal benefit of chemotherapy and trastuzumab with the combined toxicity of all that is just not known, and I struggle much more in that setting. Typically, for the smaller tumors, I will simply give hormone therapy. But as they approach or exceed a centimeter, I become more and more willing to consider adding on the trastuzumab and chemotherapy. I guess one of the problems is we have this sense that, or we know that the prognosis is worse with patients who have HER2-positive tumors. But I guess there isn't a huge amount of data specifically looking at five, six, seven millimeters, ER positive, ER negative type of situation to give us precise numbers about exactly what their risk is. Is that your take? We don't have data now, but there is a registration-type clinical trial being led by Dana-Farber that's looking at exactly that subset of patients, and in general, lower-risk HER2-positive patients, to get an idea about what the real risk is. And that's going to be very important to help us decide if we can pursue clinical trials in that setting. Another issue about adjuvant therapy with trastuzumab is which chemotherapy regimen to use. And we started to see a shift, particularly in the researchers this year, on our 2007 survey towards the use of the TCH regimen, docetaxel, carboplatin, and trastuzumab. Still, most people are using anthracycline regimens, but can you talk a little bit about what happened in December in terms of the presentation that was made by Dennis Lehman, and presumably that's what sort of started this shift in choice of chemotherapy? Well, TCH has been reported in comparison to ACT, and that's without any trastuzumab, Twice from the BCRG study, the first and second interim reports both showed the same thing generally, which is that the trastuzumab-containing regimens were superior to the non-trastuzumab control arm. The TCH regimen specifically is essentially indistinguishable from the ACTH arm, with the exception that it has less in the way of significant cardiac events, and that's the selling point. I guess the only caution for everybody is that that particular regimen is not as thoroughly tested as the anthracycline cyclophosphamide taxane sequence, which after all was the backbone of multiple randomized trials. And secondly, as of today, it's not yet been published in a peer-reviewed fashion, and so we haven't had quite the same ability to really pour over the nuances. Having said all that, there's certainly a strong body of evidence that would say that TCH is a reasonable consideration for patients who have HER2-positive breast cancer. We were talking before about the issue of duration of hormonal therapy, and in terms of duration of use of trastuzumab, there are trials you know, trying to define that just as there are in hormonal therapy. But what we're seeing in our patterns of care studies is that consistently both investigators and the docs in practice are trying to get women out to that ear point of trastuzumab. Is that what you do, and in what situations would you use less or more? Well, again, it's sort of a body of evidence argument for me, which is that most of the patients who have been studied with trastuzumab in the adjuvant setting have received 12 months of therapy. The fact that 12 months was perhaps an arbitrary selection is really beside the point. 
it's still a fact that that's where the data is. You have a little tiny study that says that nine weeks of therapy might be equally effective. That is to say it gets the same point estimate in terms of benefit, but one has to also recognize that A, the confidence intervals in that small study are wide, and B, that is not a direct comparison against one year of therapy. So we don't really know that it's just as good as the setting that we have the most data for. In the other direction, two years of therapy versus the shorter duration has been studied in the HERA trial, and that's not yet reported, and we're waiting for that. The French currently have a trial looking at six months of therapy versus one year, but again, it's not yet reported. So considering that the largest body of evidence, and it's literally something like 95% of all the data was generated in patients who took one year of therapy. I agree with the majority of your respondents who aim for that year of treatment. I think that's the right thing to offer patients based on everything we know right now. Now, particularly after the chemotherapy stopped, really from the beginning of the use of adjuvant trastuzumab, what are some of the things that you talk to your nurses about in terms of what to look for, report to you, or concerns that maybe they should be looking for on trastuzumab? Well, in reality, once the chemo stops, most of the acute toxicity goes away since it's linked to the chemotherapy. And the thing that we are always on guard for is peripheral edema, shortness of breath, evidence of signs and symptoms of congestive heart failure. That's kind of the main thing that you have to be aware of in the long term with trastuzumab. Any sort of pearls in trying to pick up heart failure as early as possible? What kinds of things would be early symptoms? Well, I mean, one thing is just to be sensitive to the overall patient. Increasing fatigue, increasing shortness of breath, inability to lie flat in bed, subtle complaints of exercise intolerance, all those things certainly warrant a closer look. What's sort of the natural history of those few women who do develop heart failure associated with trastuzumab and chemotherapy, I guess usually anthracycline chemotherapy? What usually happens to these women? Well, here we have an interesting dilemma because we actually have not such great data on the issue of trastuzumab and heart failure. And what I mean is for anthracycline, and I mean doxorubicin primarily, induced congestive heart failure, there is typically a profound and often relatively sudden fall in ejection fraction. It is often but not always manageable with afterload reduction and inotropes and so forth, but it typically becomes a long-term chronic management problem for patients with their cardiologist, and that's the best of possible outcomes. There is an anecdotally driven and not evidence-based, if you will, impression that trastuzumab-induced cardiac dysfunction is different. For one thing, the onset is relatively early. And for anthracyclines, while there can be early onset, there often is late onset of congestive heart failure. Secondly, it doesn't appear always to be quite as profound. Thirdly, it appears to be more acutely reversible. Any number of patients that we've seen who have developed an acute congestive heart failure picture and been intubated, and two or three days later, they're off the ventilator, up and functioning, and their EFs are rising again towards normal range. And that rapidity of recovery is something that, again, I keep emphasizing anecdotally, isn't as often seen with the anthracyclines. Fourthly, there's a subtle fall in ejection fraction that's frequently detected because of our increased scrutiny of these patients. And frankly, the clinical consequences of that subclinical fall are really not known right now. 